You are listening to episode 43 of the EU Startups podcast. Today's guest is Kaspar Wilstrup, the founder and CEO of the fast-growing Danish AI startup Apsu. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the EU Startups Podcast. And before we jump into the interview with today's guest, I'm excited to introduce our podcast sponsor. This episode of the EU Startups Podcast is brought to you by Vanta, helping you scale security practices and automate compliance for the industry's most sought-after standards. To close and grow major customers, you have to demonstrate trust. But providing your security and compliance can be time-consuming tedious and expensive, especially for startups, unless you use Vanta. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for the most thought-after compliance standards like SOC2 and ISO 27001 and gets you audit-ready in weeks instead of months. With Vanta, you get up to 400 hours of your time back and reach up to 85% in cost savings. And for a limited time, EU Startups listeners get $1,000 off Vanta. Just go to vanta.com forward slash EU Startups without a dash to get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to one more episode of the EU Startup Podcast. Today, we're joined by Castle Vilsrup, co-founder and CEO of AI analytics company Apsio. Based in Denmark, Absu builds adaptive AI that empowers humans to do more specialized, impactful, and creative work. Casper, thank you very much for taking the time and welcome to the EU Startup Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me here today. Would you mind starting by walking us through your entrepreneurial journey and how it led you to found Absu? Certainly, I'll happily do that. Um, so actually, I my life with computers started with that. Well, like many people started when I was actually a small kid. When I was 11, I got my first uh, PC that was back in 81. Um, so computers were very different back then. But I immediately fell in love with computers. Uh, and I have been working with computers as a hobby or professionally ever since. But back then, I didn't really think about having a career in tech or computers or anything like that. I, it was so new that it was a, wasn't a thing that uh, that that jumped into my mind. So I pursued a career in physics instead uh, and uh, and wanted to be a physicist, really. So I started studying physics at the university in, here in Copenhagen uh, in the 90s. But while doing that, I got more and more into this uh, emerging field of, of computing. And as a physics student as well, I was quite often brought into pretty high-profile projects where, where my coding skills were more important than my physics skills. So I got more and more into to specializing in the idea of computers. And that led me to, um, to actually invent a, a hardware device for, um, for, uh, for supercomputing uh, solutions that were like a, a relatively new thing at the time. And then I ended up, maybe as a side project, founding a company back in 99, where we were actually uh, making and selling these hardware devices. Um, so I think I thought about it as a, as a side project early on, but it very quickly became like of course the main passion of my life and uh, and the physics was was pushed to the background um 
99 was not the best year to start a founder uh, to found a startup company. Um, dot com bubble thing happened in March the next year, so we ran into a lot of trouble with my startup company, but we actually survived. And I ended up selling that company in 2004. And I've been in in startup space either on the founder side, but also I worked a lot on the on the investor side for many years ever since then. So I would say from 99 until this day, it has been all about entrepreneurship and uh, tech startup companies. And so talking about Absu, what does Absu does, and why is it different from some other competitors in the market? Yes, so. My my career has been mainly focused on AI companies that or companies that focused on difficult data science or machine learning kind of problems, but I never really called them that. It was more like data analytics. I've studied as a physics student. It was quantum fields. And later on, I've worked in a lot of different industries and had startup companies that crunched data in a lot of different industries. But this idea of uh, of using computers to understand the world has really been this the center of my career always um and that is a subfield within artificial intelligence so artificial intelligence is a super broad definition uh it's really an umbrella term for a very large set of technologies but one of the technologies that falls under the artificial intelligence umbrella is the idea of symbolic artificial intelligence and symbolic artificial intelligence is um is about finding the rational structures in the world. So it's about, for instance, understanding the scientific rules that govern the world or understanding the underlying processes that determine whether people act in a certain way. Whereas other types of artificial intelligence is more about predicting behavior and predicting what will happen in the world. So there's a clear distinction, at least in in the, the AI research field, between studying the processes that govern the world and, and using uh, AI to predict what will happen in the world. I founded Absu in 2018 to focus on, on the symbolic artificial intelligence idea, on trying to build AI that, that understands the world at a level that the machine learning approaches uh, of the day and also the prevalent machine learning uh, approaches today does not. So uh, you could call it a kind of explainable artificial intelligence, but it's actually deeper than that. It's about finding models that are themselves explanations of what happens in the world. Um, and uh, and that's what Absu has specialized in. We're five years old now, and we've worked on, on symbolic AI in those five years. So, and looking back on the journey to founding Absu, can you talk us about a big challenge you faced and how you got it through? And would you have done anything different to solve that issue? So I think founding Absu was different from everything else I did in my career in that I disregarded an advice that I've given so often to other people. And that advice was find a business problem and a technology that can solve that problem and then do a startup. But you need to understand the business problem first. And uh, and with Absu, I took a leap. I, I, I dis, dis, um, disregarded that advice myself because Absu was founded as a tech vision. We knew we wanted to do symbolic artificial intelligence. And of course, we came up with business ideas about how to monetize such a technology once we had invented it. But it's very difficult to actually speculate about how to monetize a technology that you haven't invented yet. Um, So that is one of the perhaps most difficult journeys you can take as a startup company um, is to really be that technology centric. But it also in the end is perhaps the most rewarding journey if you succeed. 
Um, so I don't think it was a mistake, um, but I just think it's something that is important to highlight that when you when you, you when you start a, a company, you have to think carefully about what you actually want to achieve. Do you want to have quick commercial success, or do you want to realize some technological vision that's burning inside of you? And I was in this in absolute. We're certainly in the in the former camp. Okay. Yeah. So also talking about AI, like you have been in the industry for a while, you already mentioned like what ignited your passion or your interest in the sector. So before it wasn't part, like AI wasn't part of a daily conversation as it is now. How have you seen the landscape evolve through the years? Yeah. So I came across the term AI in the early 90s. And back then, AI actually meant something very different from what it did today. We were just coming off the heels of a very big downturn in the belief in artificial intelligence systems after a, a period in the 80s where, where expert systems were thought to be the solution uh, for, for, for human-level artificial intelligence systems. That turned out to be horribly wrong, and that then led to a long downturn. Then came the neural networks that were really promising in the 80s oh, sorry in the 90s um and uh and i followed that very closely and i always had this in those years that's where i guess my current belief in in symbolic ai was really founded i think that i've i always felt that that neural networks was the right approach but used the wrong way like we're just trying to fit neural networks on data to predict things um but that's what a lot of people thought at the time. But there was a hype period then uh, around that a little later that then turned out to, to be yet another just hype. People thinking that neural networks could do things that it turned out not to be able to. Uh, and then came another, I wouldn't call it an AI winter, but there was a, this, this significant downturn in the interest in AI in the early zeros. And I think it's kind of stayed that way until the transformer architecture was uh, was was put in front of everybody essentially with the chat dpt launch mm-hmm. um so and and that has really tried changed the world in in so many ways and what's fascinating when i think about the the previous periods that i've been through with downturns and upturns and in, in interest in ai is that this time is there's something very different this time and and that is that ai is actually delivering real results and in every each of the other cycles that i can remember it has been about the promise of what AI would do, but not actual. I cannot come up with any actual impressive human-level capabilities of systems from, say, the 90s era or the zeros era. And now suddenly we're seeing AI being built into everything. And here we're talking about the specific type of AI that that ChatGPT is an example of, like transformer architectures for large language models. And that's different. So this this hype period will not go away. This is not a hype period in a, in a certain sense. Of course, AI is hyped, but we're also it's more it's more similar to the early days of the internet, where we were still trying to understand what it could do for us, and a lot of people placed bets in wrong directions. But the internet never went away, and the idea of hyping the internet was it's not really a thing. And in the same sense, the era we're in now, I'm willing to bet it's 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 here to stay. AI is going to transform the world as much as the internet did actually i think more yeah. and i also see i've also seen that you're very vocal about it on twitter <laughs> what are what are the challenges you see in terms of ethics and privacy y- yes because when, an important thing to realize is that when a new technology arrives 
things are going to change. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I there's people say that technology changes the world, but I kind of don't really like that phrase. I, I like to say that somebody changes the world with technology. And I think it's important to bring agency back in the hands of humans. So what I mean when I say that is technology is a me is a tool that people can use to radically transform the world we live in. And there are some trajectories that we're just very naturally follow unless we think carefully. But the future is never given. And when you th- and when you act in the world your actions actually change the world, not the technology. So I, I'm a big proponent of the idea of let's let's really take this time to understand our values and what we want to use AI to further and what we want to avoid AI doing to us as a society. And I think that's an important public discourse. And I, I'm, I really enjoy taking part of that discourse. On the other side, on the flip side, a problem with what is currently happening happening is that there's a strong push in today's society that whenever somebody can point to a problem, you kind of want to solve it through regulation. Um, and and here we're we're still in the invention process where where we're still trying to figure out what AI can even do. And to me, regulating now will actually do much more damage than 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 benefit. At least yeah, well, in some areas, uh, and I'll, I'll happily return to what that is. Whereas, what is really important is to keep the discourse open. What's really important is that we, as humans, continue talking about what kind of changes do we want AI to help us make into our society, and then shoot for those. And that's not a regulation thing. That is a that's a public debate thing. And regulation can even, to a certain degree, shut that down because people are starting to hit each other in their heads. Uh, with with suggested regulations, and when they come into place, we'll also be able to hit each other in the head with rules, which is perhaps not really optimal. I was just going to ask that because the EUA Act, for example, is coming. Mm-hmm. It has a two-year implementation, and regulation is actually a hot topic, as you said. Mm-hmm. And do you believe like it's restraining innovation, or maybe it's a necessary pause to ensure we head into a right direction? I, I think Regulation of uses of AI is necessary. Mm-hmm. And there are aspects in the EU AI Act that I wholeheartedly support. And it's, it's things such as understanding or rating use cases into risk categories. It's a very powerful idea and something that I, I really support um, because it will help us be mindful of where we have to think extra hard when we use artificial intelligence. So that part of the coming regulation is, is really a good idea. Um, including, let's say, when we go to the high-risk areas, perhaps also some some pretty strict rules on what can actually be done. Hmm. Um, I think that there are other aspects of the AI regulation which is much more speculative, where we're we're conjecturing problems that that are really more in the sci-fi domain than in than in the in the real domain. And I'm not saying that. They don't come true. A lot of sci-fi stories have come true. But regulating based on super speculative futures is very difficult. And that sometimes when people say uh, guiding innovation, that's actually a term that I've heard used today. They mean that. They mean try to predict the future in a science fiction kind of sense and then create rules that make sure that we run towards a certain predicted future. 
and it, it sounds appealing, but the entire idea actually breaks down when you realize that the future you're talking about is just a prediction. It's just a speculation. There's no guarantee you would ever have gone there in the first place. There's no guarantee that you can get to another future, which is itself speculation. So although I understand the, the urge to proactively or preemptively regulate and guide innovation, I also think it's one of the things we should be most careful with actually doing because we don't know what we're doing. You're, you're, you're interacting with the system that is in your own mind. It's, it's a future state that you're interacting with. And there is a certain aspect that of of what I call, I don't want this to sound too callous, but I, I call it peacock doomerism. Um, and the idea here is that there's certainly a tendency that the people who can paint the most scary picture of the future also gets the most attention. Um, so there is a, there's a natural selection here happening where the more interesting but also scary of a future scenario you can paint up, the more attention you get, and therefore perhaps also the more attention of the lawmakers. Um, and and that's that's really a, a, a bad dynamic in a certain sense. Um, now, I know people, some people will get in, a little insulted by the term peacock doomerism because I'm essentially <laughs> saying that, that they're on purpose creating narratives that are even worse than the, the other people's narratives to get attention. I don't think that most people actually do that. It's more like a natural selection. There are really people out there. I know a lot of AI researchers and, and, and philosophers who are genuinely scared. But it's also is clearly a thing that the more scared you are and the more good you are with words, the more attention you get. So if you combine the, no, the idea of, of preemptive or speculative regulation to guide a uncertain future with a tendency to overselect for the most scary scenarios, then you have a pretty bad recipe, I think. A recipe that could ultimately lead you to first to start with guiding innovation, but the next step to, could be to guide science itself. Like You're not allowed to even research into these kind of 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 uh, areas of study, example. I'm I've been a very, I've been an amateur student of of uh, philosophy of mind my entire life. I love philosophy of mind. I read everything that comes out uh, in that field, and uh, and I really follow it closely. So, but but philosophy of mind is about what is what does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean to be a self? What it, does it mean to be? What's the relationship between the subject and the object? And right now we're in a phase where philosophy of mind is actually becoming a science in a certain sense because AI will allow us to experiment with uh, with what it means to be a mind. I'm not saying an AI is a mind, actually. I don't think it is. I don't think that large language models or anything is conscious at all. But there are aspects here where we are trying to understand what it means to be a mind and can study the phenomenon of consciousness in a scientific manner. But there is a certain clear risk, as I see it, that that kind of study, the study of of uh, the relationship between mind and uh, and the external world, will be governed by regulation, because it falls under the umbrella of AI. And some people could say that this will also perhaps lead to machines that can do things and act on their act on their own behalf. And and here I just I get. I, that makes me really sad. Like philosophy is an important field, and imagining that philosophers—if you take this to the extreme—that philosophers are regulated in what kind of theories of how the mind world works they can actually research, because it falls under the AI umbrella, and we want to guide research with the AI umbrella to avoid certain speculative uh, scenarios in the future. 
Uh, and here I'm doing I'm doing the same thing that uh, that I'm talking about other people doing in in creating future scenarios because this is also speculative. Like the entire scenario that I conjured up here is itself a speculation about a future state. Um, but I still think it's 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 fascinating and scary to think that that maybe our fear of the future will eventually could risk us taking steps that could be even guiding philosophy. Uh, or, or controlling what kind of philosophy you can do, and that would be think about what that actually means. It's kind of mind control that I don't think anybody would would want, but um, there is a risk that we could get it. Yeah, I mean, with AI, the possibilities right now are infinite, and I guess we have to wait a little bit more and maybe look to a brighter, less scary future. Yeah, and well, for now we're getting close to the end of the interview, and. We have many startup founders and people aiming to found their own startups. So I wanted to give them some, well, I want you to give them some advice. And to those who are considering to leverage AI in their businesses, but may not be aware of the challenges. Well, first I'll, I'll go a little back to the thing I said earlier. Mm -hmm. As a startup, founder you need to make very sure that you know what you want to achieve and most likely most of the people thinking about starting a company want to achieve a very successful trajectory with that company fast growth and if that's what you want then all that matters is in finding the right people and the right problem forget about the tech go out in the world find the right problem problem that really needs solving and then find the people who knows how to solve that problem and who has a perhaps good track record of solving problems in that field in the past. That will absolutely maximize your probability of success. And I know this because I've done due diligence on so many companies, more than 100 companies in my own career in the VC side of things. And I actually did data collection on that. And I I know from my own data, and it's a well-known fact in, in its own right, that the team and the, and, and the problem domain are the two most important factors. The tech doesn't matter. You have plenty of time to iterate on how to get the tech to actually solve your problem. Um, so start there. Sorry, and that, of course, that's actually the opposite of what I just said I did myself, <laughs> but I've allowed myself to take a different direction with Absolute because mm -hmm. I've done my startups in the past. I've done my my stints with with um, with on the VC side of things. I actually, I wanted to, to take the risk of, uh, of focusing on a technology, and you, you could call that deep tech. And and if that's the kind of person you are, then do that, because that would be another very strong advice for me. If you end up being too guided by optimizing for a goal that isn't actually your goal, you're actually inner motivation, then that motivation will not last you through the journey that it is to do a startup company. So even though my advice is start with a big business problem, solve that. If your burning passion is tech, then start with tech and build that because the passion is what will get you to succeed in the long run. And what helps you maintain your self-balance? Because being a CEO is never a CEO, like you've had positions where you manage people. How do you navigate the stress and pressure? I walk. I take very, very long hikes. Mm -hmm. um, everybody who knows me knows that that's really my, my strange quirk, is that I'll go for 50-kilometer hikes uh, morning to evening not bring my phone, not bring a headset, just bring myself and my walking shoes and maybe a little food. It's also interesting <laughs> to experiment with not bringing food, actually, that does other things to you. But that's what I do. Um, and uh, and then I also, I 
it's it is every startup founder. Well, I guess everybody who's like passionate about anything will know this that you are in a constant battle with yourself about stopping. You have to go to bed at night. Um, you have to take weekends off now and then with your family. And you, I, I think there is no real advice. Here. It's just this battle is a battle you'll always be having as a startup founder or any passionate person, I guess. Uh, and take that battle seriously because if you lose the battle to yourself and never and stop sleeping or stop taking days off you won't really last long um so take take care of that part of yourself as well keep fighting that battle with yourself and just to close this conversation i have one last personal one one last personal question what's the best piece of advice you've received as an entrepreneur and how it has guided you It was very early on where um, I was actually s surrounded by people who were very passionate about the idea of transparency and openness uh, in in a company that I was in, particularly a guy called Last Two Orb inspired me a lot in this and many other ways. And I think one thing that has burned itself into my mind as uh, as a good principle is listen to people. Listen to as many people as you possibly can. Listen to people who you disagree with. And if you can't find anybody that you disagree with, that disagrees with you, search more. Um, because the most important thing when you're trying to do something new is to get as much and as diverse input as you possibly can. That in, that includes listening to your when when the company grows, it's tempting to get into this. I'm I'm the guy who knows it all, uh, and I've surrounded myself with a relatively small group of people who I trust to know the parts that I don't know. And don't don't do that. Don't don't go into that too much of a bubble. There, you have to keep going out to other people in your now growing organization and get their viewpoint. You have to also go outside of the organization and actually seek out the diverging views and this goes for everything it goes for the product direction it goes for communication it goes for um how to manage and and, and leadership principles and uh how to spend your 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 working day so listen to people and don't necessarily do what they say but never stop <laughs> seeking out good advice well casper thank you very much again for joining us We're very looking forward to see your next steps and absolute next steps. Thank, Thank you. you. It was a pleasure being here.